Good morning, Bethel. So 1 Samuel 21, 1 through 22, 1. At this point, Saul is threatening David's life, and so David is fleeing from that threat. This is the word of the Lord, starting in verse 1. Then David came to Nob to Ahimelech the priest. And Ahimelech came to meet David, trembling, and said to him, Why are you alone and no one with you? And David said to Ahimelech the priest, The king has charged me with a matter and said to me, Let no one know anything of the matter about which I send you and with which I have charged you. I have made an appointment with the young men for such and such a place. Now then, what what do you have on hand? Give me five loaves of bread or whatever is here. And the priest answered David, I have no common bread on hand, but there is holy bread, if the young men have kept themselves from women. And David answered the priest, Truly women have been kept from us as always when I go on an expedition. The vessels of the young men are holy even when it is an ordinary journey. How much more today will their vessels be holy? So the priest gave him the holy bread, for there was no bread there but the bread of the presence, which is removed from before the Lord to be replaced by hot bread on the day it is taken away. Now a certain man of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord. His name was Doeg the Edomite, the chief of Saul's herdsmen. Then David said to Ahimelech, Then have you not here a spear or a sword on hand? For I have brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me, because the king's business required haste. And the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you struck down in the valley of Elah, behold, it is here wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you will take that, take it, for there is none but that here. And David said, There is none like that. Give it to me. And David rose and fled that day from Saul and went to Achish, the king of Gath. And the servants of Achish said to him, Is not this David, the king of the land? Did they not sing to one another of him in dances? Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And David took these words to heart and was much afraid of Achish, the king of Gath. So he changed his behavior before them and pretended to be insane in their hands and made marks on the doors of the gate and let his spittle run down his beard. Then Achish said to his servants, Behold, you see the man is mad. Why then have you brought him to me? Do I lack madmen that you have brought this fellow to behave as a madman in my presence? Shall this fellow come into my house? David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. It's the word of the Lord. You may have a seat. Morning, brothers and sisters. We are doing this series this summer called Summer in the Psalms for the Fight of Faith. We've looked at guilt and faith. So we've got to fight this fight of faith against a lot of different issues, a lot of different threats. And so guilt can paralyze us. What do we do there? We looked at Psalm 32 and the grace that is available for us to lay hold of by faith and deal with our guilt because God's dealt with our guilt through Christ and his um, forgiving, atoning uh, grace. Anger and faith we looked at in Psalm 37 and then depression and faith in Psalm 42 and 43. So this morning, um, we're looking at fear and faith, and we're considering that from Psalm 56. So if you're not there yet, why don't you go ahead and turn 
in your Bibles to page 476, that's Psalm 56. If you don't have a Bible, once again, you can grab that one in the pew um, and find Psalm 56 on page 476. So as you're turning, I want you to think about your life, uh, think about your fears, Maybe there's some patterns there. Maybe there's some uh, recurring fears that you have to battle on a regular basis. Um, But really the question is, do you believe you can fight your fears? And I don't mean up in here in your head. I mean, practically in your life, do you operate? Do Do you really believe you can fight your fears? Or does it more often feel like you're helpless against your fears. Are we helpless against our fears? Are we powerless slaves to our fears? They can certainly operate like masters, right? Kind of cracking the whip, and we just feel very weak in the face of our fears. So it feels that way, maybe most of the time with some fears, or some of the time, or often at least. Well, before we dive into Psalm 56, do you remember... um, that passage in 2 Corinthians 10 that talks about taking thoughts captive to the obedience of Christ. So Paul talks about how we don't wage war by human means, by worldly weapons. Instead, he writes in in 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. So there's a lot of lies out there. Paul was seeking to love people with the truth, and so he had to wage war against the lies. We need to do the same thing in our own lives and as we seek to love others. And we've been encouraging you to read that book, Don't Follow Your Heart, by John Bloom this summer as a compliment to this series. So I want you to hear some things that he writes in this book. Again, you'll see why we're recommending it. You can pick up a copy at the Welcome Desk, um, why we're recommending it as a compliment to this series. But just listen to some things that he writes here. It's really, really helpful, and I think it'll set up our study of Psalm 56. He wrote, Adam and Eve and all of us with them, fell because of an argument. They believed the serpent's argument and stopped believing God. See, it's a faith issue. That is the deadly essence of sin, not believing God. Now, watch how he ties this in with emotions. And remember, we're considering fear this morning, fear and faith. He writes, watch your emotions. They are signals of arguments. Your emotions, which can, land you, which can land on you like vague impressions or moods, are usually responses to an argument. Moods don't come out of nowhere. When we are angry, discouraged, depressed, anxious, self-pitying, fearful, or irritable, it is likely because we are believing something very specific. To battle sin is to battle unbelief or to destroy arguments. So think back to the garden. 
What was Satan's argument? It was something like, God's holding out on you. He's a celestial killjoy. He tried to get them to feel like the freedoms were small and the restrictions were big and heavy. And he did it by subtly arguing, arguing subtly, that God was not for them. How can he be for you? I mean, did he really say? So if it starts to seem like God's holding out on you, that he's withholding good from you, then you're going to start to believe a lie and your emotions will follow, right? Tracking? So listen again to John Bloom. Your battle today will not be against flesh and blood, but the deceitfulness of indwelling sin. And these two forces sin and Satan, are going to try to use your emotions against you. So it might be helpful by way of preparation to remember the purpose of emotions so that you can fight more effectively and know when to counter them. God designed your emotions, like fear, to be gauges, not guides. They're meant to report to you, not rule you. The pattern of your emotions will give you a reading on where your hope is. That's why emotions such as delight, Psalm 37, we looked at that a few weeks ago, affection, fear, anger, and joy are so important in the Bible. They reveal what your heart loves, trusts, and fears. But because our emotions are wired into our fallen nature as well as into our regenerate nature, sin and Satan will use them to try to manipulate us to act faithlessly. That's why our emotional responses to temptation can seem like imperatives. Hear this. Our emotional responses to temptation can seem like imperatives. I must do. Rather than indicatives, here's what I'm being told to do. Just remember, that's deceit. Emotions aren't imperatives. They're not your boss. They're indicatives. They're reports. That's why Paul wrote, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. So get ready. Bloom writes, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Hell's primary objective is to destroy faith in God. All of its elaborate strategies and all of its diabolical energies are focused on one thing, breaking the power of the word of God by undermining our trust in it. Therefore, we find ourselves fighting an enemy that constantly seeks to alter our perception of reality because it's deceitful lies, right? So hell wages a war of distortion. It seeks to make the most destructive things look tantalizingly desirable, like eating fruit from a tree or whatever your temptation du jour might be. It seeks to make, it seeks to make the most wonderful things look unbearably boring, it seeks to make the most trustworthy things look unreliable. It seeks to make the one true fountain of joy look like a dry well and a broken cistern look like a spring of refreshment. Hell even makes hell look entertaining. And so the devil will, prom will make promises to you and threats against you. He will likely tap into your weak areas of unbelief and you may find your emotions surging in the wrong direction. 
When that happens, don't be overly impressed. And remember that your emotions are gauges, not guides. Let them tell you where the attack is being made so that you can fight it with the right promises. You can fight those lies with truth, with the right promises. That's the fight of faith. So the fight of our life is the fight of faith, and this, tr- this summer is like training, training for the fight of faith. What does that look like? It's, it's really one fight, the fight of faith, but it has lots of different fronts, like dealing with my guilt, dealing with my depression or my discouragement, my despondency, dealing with my anger, dealing with my fears. So this is like training. We're learning how to wage war for the good of our souls and the good of others because the Christian life is a life of faith from beginning to end. There's one war, but it's waged on many fronts. And so this morning, the front is our fears. Can we fight our fears? Yes, and we must. And Psalm 56 is going to show us the way. Are we helpless against our fears? No. Psalm 56 is testimony to that the truth that God is for us is more powerful than the threats against us. The truth that God is for us is more powerful than the threats against us. And are we powerless slaves to our fears? No, it may feel that way, but we can actually defy our fears by faith in the God who is for us. So greater is he who is in us by his spirit, who is with us, who is for us than the devil who prowls around us and the threats that come against us. So let's first take a look at the threats that David faced here. Psalm 56, look at verse 1. Actually, let's make sure we note this uh, heading first because that's why we read, that's why Tyler read 1 Samuel 21 this morning because that's the background. To the choir master, according to the dove on far-off terebinths, maybe the, the melody, the name of the song that this psalm goes with, a miktam of David, when the Philistines seized him in Gath. So how did he respond to that scary situation? Lots of reasons to be fearful, lots of threats surrounding him. He responded, be gracious to me, O God, for man tramples on me. All day long an attacker oppresses me. My enemies trample on me all day long, for many attack me proudly. You see also the threats. This is the first point in our outline. In verses 5 and 6, look at it there. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they have waited for my life. So the threats refer primarily to the Philistine threats. But also don't forget why David had to flee in the first place. It's because of the threat of King Saul. Saul was coming after him to kill him. And Jonathan kind of went in between and gave David the heads up, and so he fled. He's the one that put David in this desperate place. Even if you know how the story continues, that Dog the Edomite that was there with Ahimelech, he ends up also doing all kinds of trouble, lurking and listening and wreaking havoc 
Um, so the threats are all around. They're serious. They're mortal threats that David's dealing with here. So can you imagine how desperate David must have been? How he must have felt like he had nowhere to run, nowhere to hide. Why in the world else would you go to Gath? Like, did you pick up on it? He took Goliath's sword with him. Um, hello? Goliath of Gath. Okay, so I'm going to grab Goliath's sword, and I don't know, where should I go to flee for refuge? I'll go to Gath, you know, because I'm the one that killed their champion, and that seems crazy. Well, that's how desperate he was. So there he's in mortal peril. These are not small, petty threats. These are big threats. So the things that we may face might be very different from what David faced. Some of the, th the threats, however, that we face can be just as great. We can be in mortal peril. Some of the threats that we face can certainly feel really big. But the bottom line is this. The grace of this psalm is that there is grace for the fight of faith in the face of any threats, no matter how big. And certainly for our garden variety threats as well. Smaller daily threats like fear of man that takes place on all different fronts. We can become such a slave of our fear because people are so big and God is so small. Oh, what are they going to... We so fear the, the frown of those, the disapproval, the rejection of those around us, and we're enslaved by it. So there's grace strong enough for all of our fears, from the small to the biggest, because we have a God strong enough for all of our fears because he is infinitely stronger than the strongest threat. So let's follow the path that David walks here in the face of those threats. When I am afraid, point number two, look at verse three. When I am afraid, I put my trust in you, in God whose word I praise, in God I trust, I shall not be afraid. What can flesh do to me? So in your life, how does that first sentence usually end? When I'm afraid, dot, dot, dot. I don't mean giving the right answer. I mean, in your life, on a daily, weekly basis, how do you often finish that sentence? When I'm afraid, I... Do you just get busy to avoid the fear and the threat and try to just drown it out with noise? Do you get busy in another way to kind of attack and neutralize the threat and do it in your own strength? You could say, do you typically flee in a bad way trying to avoid? Or do you fight again in a bad way, taking matters into your own hands? Do you run to some refuge other than God, self-medicate? Do you attack the threat using worldly weapons, you see? So the issue is where do you put your faith? It's the fight of faith. This is the path we need to learn. This is the path we need to beat so often that we can find it in the dark when the threats get really serious. This is not a war that's quickly won, okay? So ultimately, the battle is the Lord's. Jesus won the ultimate decisive battle at the cross, and so in the strength that he supplies, we can fight the fight of faith. But this is not a battle that's going to be won quickly. We're going to 
fight it for the rest of our lives. The heat of the battle is going to ebb and flow, but we are going to fight this battle for the rest of our lives. And sometimes I think what happens, this is, I think, the danger for all of us, and I've heard things like this that concern me greatly, is that we tire of fighting. God doesn't deliver us fast enough, and so we start running elsewhere. Have you ever said or thought things like, I've tried reading and praying. didn't work. And then all of a sudden, other answers, other refuges, other weapons seem so much more practical. So I've tried reading and praying. It didn't work, but these psychotropic drugs, now there's a Savior that can do something. There may be a place, but what I'm saying is, if you're using it as a Savior, never going to make a good God. We can run to alcohol or media distraction or entertainment or sleeping pills or whatever, and there can be a proper place for those things, but when we use them like a refuge rather than running to the Lord, it's a problem. So when we feel like we get more practical benefit from things like that rather than from the grace of God through the Word of God and in conversation with God, clinging to God, that's a dangerous path to tread. So when I am afraid, I need to trust in God, to trust in the God who is for me. So point number three, faith in the God who is for me. So Chad, can you put that first slide of verses three and four? I want you to see this. Um, maybe you saw this, maybe not. But look this can seem crazy. When I'm afraid, can you see that little dot? Maybe not. You see the dot? Okay. When I'm afraid, do you see? Uh, so it didn't quite work out here. This B should be there. This A should be there. Okay. It's called a chiasm, like a, like a little arrow. So when I'm afraid, how do you, how in the world do you get from there to there? When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid? David, are you crazy? That seems crazy. But there's a path in between there and there. That's the fight of faith. This is super practical. And this is the path we have to beat until we can walk it in the dark, we can find it in the dark. When I'm afraid, what do I do? I put my trust. It's a faith issue. Trust in you, in God whose word I praise. In God I trust, I shall not be afraid. So you run to God. What you know of God is found in the word, his promises, his grace, who he is, his character, his faithfulness, his past faithfulness, his present with you and for you-ness, and his promises to be there for you and with you. And when you lay hold of those by faith, all of a sudden, your fear gets overcome by faith. And so when you are afraid, when this happens, that starts to happen. I shall not be afraid. And all of a sudden, what can flesh, what can man do to me? Those threats were this big. They start to shrink down to size because you're focusing not on your fears, but you're focusing on God. And as he gets big in your 
eyes, spiritual eyes of faith, the threats start to shrink down to size. What can, what can man do to me? So you got to see this is a where you put your faith <clears throat> issue. Um, now, <laughs> apart from this stuff up here, I mean, what can flesh do to me? You, you could kind of want to say, well, um, hello, a lot. But remember, this is David, and remember the situation he's in. So you can't just dismiss what he's saying. In fact, look, look where he goes. What can flesh do to me? Well, I mean, let me make a list for you. Well, David actually does. Look at how he, where he goes from there. All day long they injure my cause. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They stir up strife. They lurk. They watch my steps as they've waited for my life. So, of course, in one sense, people can do a whole lot of damage against us. David's not blind to that fact. He's not being, you know, rose-colored glasses or, you know, just crazy about that, ignoring that. He's just saying that God is bigger. This is the real contrast, flesh or God. So when I am afraid, I shall not be afraid when I fight my fears by faith in the God who is for me. So look at the second illustration of his fight. Chad, you want to put that slide up, verses 9 to 11. Again, see, this is such a, this is a picture of what this fight looks like. <clears throat> then my enemies will turn back in the day when I call. So he's calling out to the Lord. He's praying. He's desperately depending on the Lord. Sorry, again, this didn't, I know it's hard to format it um, for the screen like this. So, so in the day when I call, I shall not be afraid. Do you see that? This I know that God is for me, in God I trust. Those are parallel. And then these two are parallel. In God whose word I praise, in the Lord whose word I praise. So again, the threats are big. They're real. They're up in your face. What are you going to do? The fight of faith. This is what I need to know. Where am I going to find solid ground to stand on, reasons to believe that this is true, that God is for me? That's where I'm going to find it, in his word. And when his word becomes real, his grace becomes real, I praise that word because I have a sure foundation underneath me. And I know that God is for me, and it's in God whom I trust, who I, in God I trust, and so therefore my fear is driven away, and what can man do to me? So, where do you run? When I'm afraid, dot, 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 We need to run to God. What does it look like? You can see it looks like the word and prayer. We fight the fear of threats by faith in the words and the promises of God, his salvation and deliverance in the past, his justice, his commitment to be for you. One commentator wrote this. He said, trust is not an independent act of human will, like we just kind of screw it up from within. It's a response to salvation and to the promise of salvation. This explains the unusual formulation, God whose word I praise. So we're not just 
trying to screw up our own faith, like I need to trust more, I need to trust more, just in our own strength, we are banking on truth from God about who he is, what he's done, what he promises to continue to do for us. How do you know that God is for you? How did David know? Word and covenantal promises, right? He made this covenantal commitment to David, and he was faithful in the past, and his promises could be banked on. And so believing those promises, you're strengthened in the face of the threats and freed from fear to walk forward courageously. Look also at how he recounts how God is for him. Look at verse 8. <clears throat> Oftentimes, <clears throat> in the face of threats, we, we can believe the lie that God doesn't care, that he doesn't see, that he doesn't know. But David gives us truth here. He says, you've kept count of my tossings. You've put my tears in your bottle. Are they not in your book? So God's omniscience is actually in service of our faith here. He sees, he knows, and he will ultimately vindicate in the long run. So for us, on this side of the cross, how do we know that God is for us? Do we, do we have reason to believe that God is for us? Big time. The word of God, the word made flesh to show the ultimate covenantal commitment of love and God being for us type commitment. So Jesus taking our sin, taking our place to atone for our sins so that we can be reconciled to God so that God is for us unshakably. And so Romans 8 picks up on this, and Paul says, if God is for us, who can be against us? If he didn't spare his only son, but willingly, graciously gave him up for us all, how will he not also together with him graciously give us all things to face all of our fears, to face the threats that come? Do you see that? Really good news. So when I am afraid, I will put my trust in you, trust in the God who is for me, and then I shall not be afraid. So do you see that as good Bible logic, or does that sound crazy to you? When I am afraid, I shall not be afraid. Isn't that hope-giving that you can get from here to here? It's not like if you're really spiritual, if you're really believing the promises, you're never going to be afraid. No. When I'm afraid, we are all going to face fears on a regular basis. But God gives us a path because he wants to free us from our fears because he's for us. So when we are afraid, we put our trust in the God who is for us, and then we shall not be afraid. So David is believing God's word over those threats. God is becoming more real than the threats. God's becoming bigger, and the threats are shrinking down to size. He's gaining perspective through God's word. He's getting stabilized and finding security in God. <clears throat> so look at how he speaks then at the end of the chapter, verses 12 and 13. 
in response to this grace, in response to God's for usness, I must perform my vows to you, O God. I will render thank offerings to you, for you have delivered my soul from death. Yes, my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of life. He's recounting the situation. I was so afraid. I trusted in the Lord. He delivered me. And in response to that deliverance, I thank him and I praise him. Because he has taken me from the shadow of death to walking before him in the light of life. It sounds like Psalm 50. I love these verses in Psalm 50. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High. He says, call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you glorify me. That sounds like a pretty good deal. Do you face days of trouble? We're going to face days of trouble. What do you do? What's the path? Where, how do we run? We run to the Lord. Call upon me in the day of trouble. I'm omnipotent. You're helpless and weak. I'll deliver you. I don't need anything from you. I'll deliver you. Don't try to take matters into your own hands. And then you thank me. Is that a good setup? You get the deliverance. God gets the glory. It's the fight of faith. And we walk before God in the light of of life because he has accomplished the ultimate deliverance through Christ. God is for us. Nothing can separate us from the love of God, not even death. What a contrast to feeling like you're living in the shadow of death when these truths start to sink down into our souls. And so when they do, of course, the response is thank offerings and songs of gratitude. So <clears throat> as we draw this to a close here, and prepare our hearts to participate in the Lord's table. <clears throat> I want to give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, again, David's situation, he's facing threats that many of us have never or will never face, although we'll all ultimately face mortal threats because we're all going to die. But if you were here last Sunday, Alex Kirk gave an illustration of John Patton from his autobiography, okay? And it reminded me, this book, um, I, I dealt with a couple of years, actually, with some really severe fears of death. It's back in my late 20s. So I probably read the book, I don't know. Uh, anyway, I can't remember. It was, it was a while ago that I read this book, but it was so helpful because this guy, missionary to the New Hebrides, which is Vanuatu, South Seas, Fiji Islands, that area, okay, he went in to bring Jesus to islands of cannibals. So you got to believe this stuff if you're going to go say, hey, I'll be a missionary to the cannibals. Because what's the threat? They would like to kill you and serve you for dinner. And I'm not joking. That was the threat. They, they literally said that we're going to kill you and we are going to spread you out and feed you to the, the tribes. I can't even tell you how many times this guy's life was threatened. Innumerable times. It is a crazy thing to read. But it was so encouraging to my soul because I thought if, if God has grace enough for somebody to live like that, to free someone like that from 
fear, to give him courage to be able to endure those threats, and certainly he can deal with my fears and the threats I face. So that's a quick little summary of his life. Let me just give you two illustrations from his life. And hopefully what you'll hear here is, if God's that big, if he can give grace for threats that big, then I bet God has grace for my fears too and my threats. And I want to walk the path that David beat for us so that I can fight my fears by faith. So here he is. It's an autobiography. He lived in the 1800s. Um, and he actually lived to be, I think, late 80s. <laughs> he's, he's, he's one of the ones, one of those crazy missionaries that says, I'm immortal until God's work with me is done. So we should be crazy Christians that say, I'm immortal until God's work is done, whether we go to the South Seas or we just stay in Wilmington, okay? So here's what he writes. By my, but my enemies seldom slackened their hateful designs against my life, however calmed or baffled for the moment. Within a few days of the above events, when natives in large numbers were assembled at my house, a man furiously rushed on me with his axe, but a chief snatched a spade with which I had been working and dexterously defended me from instant death. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. We laugh, but do you begrudge the threats? Is it possible that it's through the threats that our faith grows and we see how strong God is to defend and deliver, how much bigger than our fears God is? Like, just maybe there's design in kicking up the threat quotient. Life in such circumstances led me to cling very near to the Lord Jesus. I knew not for one brief hour when or how attack might be made, and yet, this is beautiful, with my trembling hand clasped in the hand once nailed on Calvary, God is for me. And now, that same hand, swaying the scepter of the universe, calmness and peace and resignation abode in my soul. Next day, a wild chief followed me for about four hours with his loaded musket. And though often directed towards me, God restrained his hand. I spoke kindly to him and attended to my work as if he had not been there, fully persuaded that my God had placed me there and would protect me till my allotted task was finished. Looking up in unceasing prayer to our dear Lord Jesus, I left all in his hands and felt immortal till my work was done. Trials and hairbreadth escapes strengthened my faith and seemed only to nerve me for more to follow. And they did tread swiftly upon each other's heels. Without that abiding consciousness of the presence and power of my dear Lord and Savior, nothing else in all the world could have preserved me from losing my reason and perishing miserably. It's the only thing that kept him from going nuts. His words, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world became to me so real that it would not have startled me to behold him as Stephen did, gazing down upon the scene. I felt his supporting power, as did St. Paul when he cried, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. 
It is the sober truth, and it comes back to me sweetly after 20 years, that I had my nearest and dearest glimpses of the face and smile of my blessed Lord in those dread moments when musket, club, or spear was being leveled at my life. Oh, the bliss of living and enduring as seeing him who is invisible. That's Hebrews 11. That's the life of faith. One day, I heard an unusual bleeding amongst my few remaining goats as if they were being killed or tortured. I rushed to the goat house and found myself instantly surrounded by a band of armed men. The snare had caught me. Their weapons were raised, and I expected next instance to die. But God moved me to talk to them firmly and kindly. I warned them of their sin. Is that what you would pick, first thing to talk about? Um, I warned them of their sin and its punishment. I showed them that only my love and pity led me to remain here seeking their good and that if they killed me, they killed their best friend. I further assured them that I was not afraid to die for at death my Savior would take me to be with himself in heaven. What can man do to me? and to be far happier than I had ever been on earth, and that my only desire was to, to live, my only desire to live was to make them all as happy by teaching them to love and serve my Lord Jesus. For to me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. He believed the Bible. I then lifted my hands and eyes. Remember, loaded, like they're surrounding him, threatening his life, you going to take your eyes off those threats? He raised it. He's, I'm in God's hands. Raising his eyes and hands to the heavens and prayed aloud for Jesus to bless all my dear Tannies, island of Tana, and either to protect me or to take me home to glory as he saw to be for the best. One after another, they slipped away from me, and Jesus restrained them once again. Did ever mother run more quickly to protect her crying child in danger's hour than the Lord Jesus hastens to answer believing prayer and send help to his servants in his own good time and way, so far as it shall be for his glory and their good? Before I go any further, his wife also died there and his kids. So it wasn't always deliverance like this. But he believed that all things work together for good. A woman may forget her child, yet will I not forget you, says the Lord. Oh, that all my readers knew and felt this. As in those days and ever since, I have felt that his promise is a reality and that he is with his servants to support and bless them even unto the end of the world. So if that was true for him, if these things were true for David, do you believe that God is for you and is bigger than whatever threats are facing you right now or may face you in the future? Greater is he who is in us and with us and for us than the devil who prowls around us and the threats that come against us. So as we prepare to participate in the table, to enjoy this table together, 
Remember, the Lord's table is a sign. It signifies something. Just like the rainbow is a sign of God's promises and him promising not to wipe out the earth like that. So this is a sign. It signifies something. It signifies that those who are in Christ, who are trusting in Jesus as their Savior, we are participants in saving grace. We have a seat at the table of the Lord because we're reconciled to him. We're in his family by his grace. So specifically this morning, we should taste and see the goodness of the fact that God is for us, not against us. That is really good news, and often it's hard to believe, and he wants us to just chew on that and taste it and digest it. We are all enemies of God by nature. We fight against God and rebel against his rightful authority by nature. So if you're not a Christian this morning, just let the elements pass. You have a more fundamental need than to eat a cracker and juice. You need to bow your knee to the need that you have for reconciliation with the God of the universe. To stop trusting in yourself and start trusting God to be your Savior through Christ who died to deal with your sins and reconcile you to the Father. Because until that happens, God is actually against you, not for you. He certainly offers reconciliation to you through the cross of Christ. The arms of God are outstretched to any who are not in Christ. The arms of God are outstretched to welcome sinners, just like Jesus' arms were outstretched on the cross. Any sinner who will repent and believe. And if you'd like to talk to somebody after that, after the service about that, I would be so happy to talk to you. But for those of us who are trusting Jesus as our Savior, brothers and sisters, it is so easy to give way to unbelief and operate as if God is not for us, right? Every day, like this, multiple times, every week. So isn't it kind of God to remind us and not just Words, though those are omnipotently powerful, but also by sign, taste and touch this grace and this truth and ingest it. So this is a significant symbol that we participate in that says to us, God is for us because of Jesus, not against us. So let's pray against the doubt, against fear ruling us. Let's enjoy, embrace, pray that it would be real, that through Christ God is for us. Romans 8.32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? So perhaps as you examine your heart this morning, before you participate in the table, as you repent of unbelief, you may want to just open your Bible to Romans 8 and chew on the promises while you eat and drink these emblems of God's love in Christ. If God has justified you, no one can condemn you. No one and no thing can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And God is working all things together for good, for you, even through the hardship and the sufferings, that we can be more than conquerors through him who loved us. And God's love for us means him being for us, even to the point 
future promises that the suffering of this present time is not worth comparing with the glory that's going to be revealed to us. So past faithfulness, present faithfulness, future faithfulness, wonderful promises. God is for us. God is for us. God is for us. We need all that that means to sink down to the core of our being. We need to be reminded of it, chew on it, taste it, digest it, and that's what we do now as we take and eat the bread and drink the cup and believe that God is for us. Let's be strengthened together by the grace that is ours in Christ. Oh God, we bless your name. We thank you. We praise you. Your word is praiseworthy because it is how we know who you are and what you have done, the infinite lengths of love that you have gone to to remove the obstacles to reconciliation, to draw us back into loving fellowship with you, to deal with our rebellion, to change our hard, stony, rebellious heart to a soft heart, to adopt us as your sons and daughters because you are for us, not against us. In his name we pray, amen.